Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Thank you for standing by. This is the conference operator. Welcome to the Extended Care First Quarter 2020 Results Conference Call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode, and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and 0. I would now like to turn the conference over to Gillian Fountain, Vice President, Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Extendicare's first quarter results conference call. With me today is Extendicare's President and CEO, Michael Greer, and Senior Vice President and CFO, David Bacon. Our first quarter results were disseminated yesterday and are available on our website. The audio webcast of today's call is also available on our website, along with an accompanying slide presentation, which viewers may advance themselves. A replay of the call will be available later this afternoon until May 29th. The replay numbers and passcodes have been provided in our press release. An archive recording of this call will also be available on our website. Before we get started, please be reminded that today's call may include forward-looking statements regarding our future operations. Such statements involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that may cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed or implied today. We have identified such factors in our public filings with the securities regulators and suggest that you refer to those filings. As we discuss our performance, please bear in mind that all figures are in Canadian dollars unless otherwise noted. With that, I'll turn the call over to Michael. Thanks, Jillian, and good morning, everyone. Before we get into our first quarter results, I want to take a moment to talk about the current COVID-19 situation, review how we are managing through this pandemic, and recognize the outstanding work of our exceptional team. Our residents, clients, and frontline workers have borne the brunt of this pandemic, and we remain focused on doing everything possible to protect them while also continuing to provide the high-quality care and support they have come to expect from us. While the vast majority of our homes have been able to keep the virus at bay, our community has experienced great loss in recent weeks. Our sincere condolences are with all of the families and friends, both in our community and outside of it, who have lost a loved one to this aggressive virus. Our hearts are with them in this exceptionally difficult time. As of today, of our 69 owned long-term care homes and retirement communities, 13 long-term care homes and two retirement communities have one or more active cases of COVID-19. With the majority of these outbreaks limited to less than 10 residents and staff. In addition, Five long-term care homes previously in outbreak have been declared clear of the virus by public health. We are also working with our Extend to Care Assist clients 
to help them manage any outbreaks in their homes. As conditions and government directives have evolved, we've adapted our operations to safeguard those in our care and to protect our 22,000 employees. We have implemented enhanced infection control and management protocols throughout our operations and adapted our procedures and staffing models to various government directives. We've limited all essential visitors to our homes, put in place a universal masking policy, increased use of personal protective equipment across the organization, implemented enhanced screening of all residents and staff within our long-term care homes and retirement communities, as well as enhanced protocols in our home health care operations. As testing becomes increasingly available, we have ramped up testing of both residents and staff, improving our ability to detect and quarantine infected persons. We will continue to focus on the safety of our residents, clients, and staff as our top priority. Our staff have shown tremendous strength and compassion during this difficult time, often working long hours and covering shifts for coworkers. Their commitment is truly inspiring and makes a world of difference to those in our care and to the families that are unable to visit their loved ones. We are very happy to see our staff receive the recognition they deserve in the form of pandemic premium pay funded by several provincial governments. We hope that all governments will adopt this practice. To further recognize the extraordinary effort of all employees working in senior living facilities across Canada, we were pleased to participate as a founding member in two initiatives established to address both financial and safety needs of frontline workers. We are a founding partner in the recently announced Senior Living Cares Fund, which provides financial support for workers in the senior living sector in recognition of their extraordinary efforts during COVID-19 crisis. The fund will provide one-time financial assistance to Canadian employees of any senior living operator who work in either long-term care or retirement for emergency or unforeseen expenses related to COVID-19. Extendicare, along with the other founding partners, donated half a million dollars to establish the fund with a starting $2 million endowment. The Board of Directors of Extendicare will also be contributing a portion of their fees for the balance of 2020 to add a further $200,000 contribution to the fund. The second initiative is the Canadian Alliance to Protect and Equip Senior Living, or CAPES, which was launched in April 2020. Through this initiative, Extendicare came together with a number of senior living operators to act as a joint purchasing group to source and supply much-needed personal protective equipment for frontline employees. We've leveraged our purchasing heft and procurement expertise to buy difficult-to-find equipment and make it available to smaller senior living operators. As we work through this challenging time, we continue to monitor developments and government directives carefully. We are adapting our response to best protect our people, to keep the virus out of our homes and communities, and to move those homes that have experienced an outbreak 
into recovery. With that, I want to turn to our first quarter results, starting on slide four. For ease of comparison throughout this call, David and I will be discussing our results, excluding the impact of our BC home healthcare operations, which we exited as previous announced in January of this year. Our first quarter results improved across our lines of business, with the exception of Paramount. Revenue and NOI increased in our long-term care, retirement living, and other business segments. These were offset by lower volumes and higher operating costs in the home health care segment. The financial impacts of COVID-19 started to be felt in the latter half of March. We felt this most acutely in our paramed operations, where we have experienced a 22% decline in our average daily volumes since the middle of March. At the same time, our back office and frontline operating costs have increased as our home care offices coped with the upheaval that followed the pandemic declaration. Our retirement living operations have experienced a decline in occupancy as access to our retirement communities has been restricted. Our long-term care segment also experienced modest declines in occupancy, but the funding framework in Ontario protects income when occupancy is impacted by an outbreak, and we anticipate the same to be true in other provinces in which we operate. Given the uncertainty created by COVID-19, we have taken steps to improve our liquidity during and following the quarter, including securing additional mortgage financings and deferring non-essential capital expenditures. We continue to monitor the financial impacts of COVID-19, including the welcome relief measures announced by various levels of government across Canada. We believe that the financial impacts that we are experiencing will reverse as we emerge from the pandemic. However, due to the uncertainty of its duration and magnitude, as well as government's response to it, it is difficult to predict the extent of its impact on our operations and financial results and condition. Turning to slide five, we continue to implement our Paramed Transformation Agenda to improve efficiency. Central to this has been the implementation of our new cloud-based system aimed at improving our ability to meet the increasing demand for home health care services with improved scheduling, automated work processes, reduced staff turnover, and better support for our valued staff. As a result of COVID-19, we decided to pause the implementation of our new system, leaving Alberta, which represents approximately 5% of our business volume, to be con converted into the new platform at a later date. Prior to COVID-19, our paramed operations had started to experience year-over-year -year improvements in volumes in our Ontario operations, which are now fully converted to the cloud-based platform. The COVID-19-related impact on our volume started to be felt in the last two weeks of the first quarter, with social distancing becoming the norm and the cancellation of all non-urgent care services and elective procedures in hospitals. As of May 10th, our average daily volumes had dropped 22.5% from those in early March. 
We also experienced higher operating costs as back office staff were required to rearrange schedules and manage rapidly changing workflows. This trend has continued into the second quarter. Like everyone else, we don't have a clear picture of how long the impacts of COVID-19 will last. But we do expect that once the risk has reduced, and particularly as elective healthcare services resume, we will see increased daily volumes and can refocus our transformation agenda on back office efficiencies. Moving to slide six, despite the impact of COVID-19, long-term care operations continue to provide a stable foundation for our business. The average occupancy at our long-term care centers was 97% for the first quarter, compared to 96.9% for the same prior year period and 97.8% at the end of the fourth quarter. Funding enhancements provided earlier in 2019 along with COVID-19-related funding of approximately $400,000 helped us address increased costs in the quarter. Previously, the government had indicated plans to eliminate structural compliance premium funding for eligible beds this year. However, we recently learned that this funding will continue with the introduction of a replacement program. This means the annual structural compliance premium funding of $1.3 million will continue beyond April 1 in a new form. There have been several COVID-related provincial funding announcements across provinces in which we operate. While we are appreciative of their support, we do not have all the details on these programs yet and are still evaluating the degree to which they will help address our increased costs and lower occupancy resulting from COVID-19. The critical shortage of long-term care and the pressing need for additional long-term care beds in Canada has not changed. However, for now, everyone's focus has to be on managing the current situation. Once these immediate concerns have subsided, we believe that discussions regarding the redevelopment projects will come back to the forefront. The challenges the COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted will at least in part be addressed by building new long-term care capacity and decommissioning older facilities. Turning to slide seven, our retirement living segment continued to perform well in the first quarter. With revenue and NOI growth and strong NOI margins, despite the impact of COVID-19 in the latter part of the period. Average same-store occupancy increased compared to the same quarter last year, and lease-up activity at the Berry View also contributed to the strong performance. However, toward the end of the first quarter, our occupancy levels began to be impacted by COVID-19 as move-ins and tours for prospective residents were restricted. Stabilized occupancy at the end of the first quarter dropped from 95.1% at the end of the fourth quarter to 92.8% at March 31st. Since then, it has decreased further to 91.7% as of the end of April. We expect continued pressure on occupancy due to normal course attrition until move-ins and tours can resume.
Expansion plans at our Empire Crossing Retirement Community in Port Hope, Ontario have been put on hold as a result of COVID-19. Once the risk to our communities has passed, we expect to continue with this project. On slide eight, our assist contract services and SGP group purchasing services continue to show strong growth with revenue up by 9.6% in the first quarter year over year. Currently, we provide contract services to 53 long-term care residents and retirement living communities for third parties through Extended Care Assist, representing approximately 6,600 beds. At the end of Q1, SGP provided cost-effective products and services to approximately 73,000 senior residents across Canada, up 27.8% from the same quarter last year and 12.5% from the end of 2019. This business leverages the purchasing power of its large network to supply other senior care providers. Over the past few months, we've also used this broad purchasing reach to help supply our operations and those of our clients with personal protective equipment, so necessary to protect our staff and those in our care. We continue to develop opportunities to expand SGP and assist through additional services and product offerings and by expanding the reach of our sales team into other geographies. We'll now turn to David Bacon, our Chief Financial Officer, to provide insight into our financial results from the first quarter. Thanks, Michael. I'll first provide an overview of our corporate financial performance for the first quarter, and then I will get into some highlights of the individual business segments. Turning first to slide 10, revenue grew to $268.8 million in the first quarter, an increase of 2.3% from Q1 of 2019, largely driven by LTC funding enhancements, COVID-19 funding, growth in the retirement segment, and the effect of the leap year this quarter, partially offset by lower home health care volumes. Net operating income in Q1 of 2020 was down slightly at $30.4 million and represented 11.3% of revenue compared to 11.7% in Q1 of 2019, reflecting increased revenue offset by lower home health care volumes, increased back office operating costs, and higher costs due to COVID-19. Adjusted EBITDA increased by 300,000 to 19.9 million in Q1 of 2020, representing 7.3% of revenue compared to 7.1% for the same prior year period, impacted by lower pyramid transformation costs of 900,000, partially offset by higher other administrative costs. For the three months ended March 31st, 2020, AFFO decreased by 1 million to 11.6 million compared to the same prior year period, driven by higher maintenance, capex, and current taxes, partially offset by higher earnings. In Q1, we declared dividends of 10.7 million, representing a payout ratio of 92%. In March, we chose to suspend our dividend reinvestment plan, as we believe that the dilution this plan would create at our current share prices is not in the best interest of our shareholders. Turning to slide 11, NOI, from our home health care operations was $4.3 million for Q1 of 2020, representing a decrease of $3.5 million from the same prior year period. 
NOI margin in the first quarter was 4.8% compared to 8.6% in Q1 of 2019. Lower NOI and NOI margin in the current quarter were driven by lower volumes, which included the impact of COVID-19 in the latter half of March and higher back office operating costs. Volumes from our home healthcare operations declined by 3.1% from Q1 2019 and 2.5% from Q4 of 2019. As Michael mentioned, prior to the impact of COVID-19, we started to experience year-over-year volume increases in our Ontario operations and continue to believe that the new cloud-based system, along with the steps we are taking to approve our back office processes and procedures to leverage the new platform, will ultimately lead to the expected benefits of increasing volumes followed by improving margins. Turning to our long-term care operations on slide 12, in the first quarter, our revenue grew by 4 million, or 2.6%, and our NOI increased by 1.6 million, or 9.5% from the same prior year period, with an NOI margin of 11.5%, up from 10.8% in the first quarter last year. As long-term care funding enhancements, timing under the Ontario flow-through envelopes, COVID-19 funding, and incremental funding for the leap year this quarter were partially offset by increased cost of residence care, higher operating and labor costs, and COVID-19 costs that have yet to be refunded. Turning to retirement living on slide 13, net operating income from the retirement living operations increased 1.1 million to 3.7 million for the first quarter as compared to the same prior year period. This improvement was driven primarily by growth in average occupancy from same store operations to 86.7% for the first quarter compared with 79.3% for the same prior year period and the contribution of the Veryview community which opened in Q4 of 2019. We typically see a decline in stabilized occupancy levels over the winter months. However, this quarter, we were further impacted by COVID-19, resulting in a 230 basis point drop in stabilized occupancy at the end of Q1 as compared to the end of 2019. Turning to slide 14 and looking at our final business segment, net operating income from the contract services, consulting and group purchasing operations increased by 500,000 to 3.9 million in the first quarter compared to the same quarter last year. Due to growth in clients served in our SGP division to almost 73,000, partially offset by increased costs to support the operations and timing of consulting revenues in our assist division. Turning to slide 15 in our financial position, we're in a strong financial position with good liquidity. It's important to note that government funding underpins a significant portion of our business, and we are continuing to evaluate the various new government funding announcements uh, announced to address the increased costs associated with COVID-19. We are confident that we will be in a strong position to return our focus on the future when the pandemic is behind us. At March 31st, 2020, our consolidated cash and short-term investments on hand were 105.8 million with 70.2 million of undrawn availability on our credit facilities. After quarter end, we added a further 32.3 million in liquidity as we financed several of our retirement communities and remain well positioned for the balance of the year with only 23 million of scheduled debt maturities in Q4 remaining. And our credit metrics are largely in line with the levels at the end of the year. With that, I'll pass it back to Michael for his closing remarks. 
Thanks, David. Needless to say, it has been a challenging time for all of us, residents, clients, patients, team members, and families. Our focus remains steadfast on providing the care and support our community needs and expects. Keeping everybody safe is our number one focus. The Extended Care team is stepping up to the challenge and our resolve remains strong. Over the longer term, once this pandemic has passed, we continue to believe the demographic tailwinds and the investments we have made in our businesses will provide us with a variety of opportunities for the future. With that, we'd be happy to take any questions you may have. Claudia? Thank you, sir. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star then 1 on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then 2. We will pause for a moment as callers join the queue. Our first question is from Lorna Kalmar with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good afternoon. Hi, Lauren. Um, hi. And just uh, quickly, thank you to you guys and uh, your whole team for all of the wonderful work you guys are doing on the front lines of this pandemic. Um, just a quick one from me off the hop. How many of the LTC homes are still fully funded right now? Um, they, they, in Ontario, with the, 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 the program on the pandemic, um, all of our homes are at, with the exception of two or three homes, below the 97% threshold as it is, which is the full funding threshold. So we don't, at this point, none, none of our homes are, are in a position to, to uh, have clawbacks. Okay. Um, and then you guys got about 400000 of of COVID-related funding. How, how much more do you guys kind of expect to get and, and is the is the understanding that the goal is to sort of cover all of the COVID-19 related costs? Yeah, in the quarter we recognized 400,000 which which offset um the cost that we incurred uh in long-term care in the provinces where uh funding was received. So in the first quarter we actually received about a million three of funding uh in Ontario uh, and we took 400 of that in uh to offset the costs. Um, and we've re since then, in aggregate, up until uh, we've received about two and a half million in Ontario, and a further two and a, about just over two million is coming in in April and May. So, in aggregate, just about four and a half million to date received in Ontario. Um, and uh, Alberta just uh, started flowing some funds literally this week uh, for us uh, to again to help offset in part the pandemic costs. Uh, the second part of your question uh, around the um, the intent, we think on the long-term care side, we do anticipate that the various programs the governments have ruled out, the intention of those programs will be to, to cover the cost of COVID. Uh, we don't have all the exacting details, but uh, it's encouraging that, uh, that both Ontario and Alberta, which are our two biggest markets on, on the long-term care side, funding starting to flow, but still waiting for all the particulars about how that it'll eventually will be uh, accounted for. Okay, thank you. That was actually a really good color. Um, and then maybe could you uh, give a little bit of color on why you've decided to defer the last 5% uh, of the ERP implementation? Is it something cost-based or is it a strain on resources? 
Yeah, I, Lauren, I think that the key reason is everybody's really, really busy. Uh, so the thought of doing an implementation and doing training and, and uh, making those kinds of changes in the midst of this, we really tried to uh, reduce uh, the non-essential changes during this period of time, uh, just so that everybody can stay focused on uh, uh, responding to our clients' needs, implementing the new procedures and, and workflows for uh, safety purposes. Like a great example of that is we have to phone every client before we visit them to talk to them about uh, symptoms, uh, to screen them for uh, any telltale signs that they may have the virus. So it just adds a huge workflow on top of our normal operations to be able to do that. So that, that was a big change with literally days to implement the change. So it was just a matter of, of uh, putting that off so that people could focus on what's critically important right now. Okay. Um, and then maybe just one last one from me on retirement homes. When, when do you guys um, think that you'll be able to start reopening for tours and, and, and uh, non-essential, I, I guess, residents? Yeah, I, we're not sure about that. Um, uh, probably pretty soon. Uh, uh, it really is going to be different in different parts of the country. Uh, because I think each province is going to have their their own opening up um, kind of uh, strategy and timeline, which will be dictated by the frequency of infections that's occurring in that local environment. Uh, that said, uh, to suggest that that's going to be some kind of a straight line function, it, you know, is probably not the case. Everybody's predicting that there might be uh, waves or, or surges of infections at various times and governments may be forced to throttle back the opening up. So it's pretty unpredictable. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that said, I think we'll be, we'll be ready for whenever those windows of opportunity open up. Okay, great. Um, that's all from me. Thank you all again, and I'll turn it back. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks. Our next question is from Chris Kupri with CIBC. Please go ahead. Uh, good afternoon, and I'll echo, um, echo Lauren's comments on, on the thanks. Um, with respect to um, uh, the home care uh, business, um, when you look at the uh, – I'm, I'm not sure if you have this type of uh, information readily available, but when you look at the, um, the decline in, in volume since, since, um, since March, um, how much of that is a function of just a, an overall decline in um, uh, re referrals made to you uh, from the LINs, and how much of it is just due to the fact that maybe labor is, is less available? Yeah, Chris, I think that uh, um, the biggest drop, uh, the biggest portion of the drop is still the referrals versus the labor uh, constraint at this point. Um, so uh, we, we have seen, um, you know, a significant drop in, in those referrals since. And we have, we have um, uh, I think, bought, I won't say bottomed out because nobody knows for sure, but that, as you see from our the drop in uh, uh, in the volumes, we're at 
sort of 22.5%, which is slightly different than what we the update we gave uh, back in early April. So, but that's largely principally referral uh, drop uh, impacts at this point, um, the vast majority. And when you look at the kind of mix of um, of the volumes, uh, are are I'm I'm just guessing that volume declines are starker for um, say just PSW versus nursing type of visits. Is that is that is that fair? Yes. Yeah. And and what would your kind of mix generally be between the you know if you think about the spectrum of care that you provide in 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 home care. You know, you reference the cancellation of, of elective surgeries and so on. Is there just any kind of way we can think about how uh, how it might come back? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the I mean, the the PSW is the vast majority of our volumes. It's probably about eighty percent, and that's probably the area um, you know from a from a non-elective type home care where where people would have dropped uh, from uh, the nursing is down but not as much on a relative basis we have a very small piece of our volume uh, on the the uh, therapy side uh, physical therapy type type work that has, has really dropped off but it's a very very small piece of our business so we think as as the you know hospitals and the elective procedures reopen um, and some of the services that where where we are focused on things like hip replacement, knee replacements, those types of things um, that will drive uh, 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 care on the nursing side, but also on the PSW side, just people need help, uh, uh, sort of non-nursing type help in those situations. So we really need to see that uh, reopen uh, to, to get uh, have that volume start to recover. And then just last last one for me uh, on on this topic, um, in terms of the um, the costs, uh, the incremental costs that you experienced um, during the quarter as it related to COVID nineteen, was there anything kind of quantified uh, in in the home care business? And then um, just lastly, with respect to um, just you know government funding and, and assistance to the various healthcare sectors. Um, it, it, has there been any kind of anything that's explicitly directed at, at the home care sector? Thanks. Chris, our, our agreements with, uh, uh, you know, with, with various government agencies on the home care side have very specific pandemic clauses in them uh, that talk about uh, uh, compensation for increased costs around, you know, particularly protective equipment. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we're expecting that those those clauses will cover our costs in that regard. There are some costs, uh, back office costs, which uh, we don't think we're we're going to recover. Uh, just related to the challenge of rescheduling a lot of visits, like when everything started to shuffle around and things got cancelled and, and uh, uh, people were exposed in the field to uh, travelers or people that uh, had tested positive for COVID-19. We had a lot of people in self-isolation at home. And of course, every time one of our home care workers is confined to their home, it means that all of their work has to be rescheduled. 
And scheduling, of course, is a function of geography as well as time. And so optimizing that means that you're reshuffling all of the schedules. So it was a mammoth task to do all that rescheduling. We're seeing that calm down somewhat, uh, but we're still finding that uh, there are people who are affected, go out of commission for two or three weeks, uh, and then we have to reschedule all of their visits. So those kinds of costs, those, those kind of back office logistical costs, uh, we think we won't get uh, any kind of special compensation for those. Any idea how much that contributed to costs in the quarter? Uh, on the, the back office side, I mean, we've seen a spike in, in overtime, uh, for example. So that probably is running um, in the sort of $200,000 a quarter run rate. As, a, as an example, some of the other costs are harder to, you know, extra hours are uh, harder to look at, but OT is one thing we're looking at. Thanks very much, guys. Okay, thanks. Our next question is from Pami Beer with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. <clears throat> Thanks, and uh, hi, everyone. Um, just, uh, again, maybe uh, on Paramed, uh, can you provide some context on the increases in volume that you referred to, I guess, pre-COVID for, for January and February? Yeah, uh, Bobby, we, we, I mean, one of the things we're looking at, and I know, you know, we've talked about in the past, is, and people have been interested in, is at what point are we going to see that inflection point where we start to have some year-over-year -year growth? Um, so, um, without getting into sort of weekly specifics and numbers, we, we did have a, uh, we were starting to see uh, through February and early March uh, weekly uh, at or above last year's sort of equivalent weekly period from a volume perspective. So, they weren't dramatically higher, but, you know, given where we've been at for the last while, uh, having something uh, coming in at you know at that level or or, or modestly above it was it was an encouraging sign, uh, you know, back to the sort of rollout of Procura. I mean, we've we've got all the Ontario business, which is you know ninety ninety five percent of our you know ninety three percent of our business is probably is Ontario, and all of that was in the new system. So, so that was encouraging, and then and then you know we were we were hit with uh, with the disruption. So. Got it. Uh, that, that's helpful. Um, just um, on long-term care, you know, same property NOI was up, obviously quite strong. Um, is that really again just just timing with respect to some of the funding and I guess uh, expenses? And should we expect that uh, that will uh, normalize over the course of the year? Yeah. No, that's the fair comment. It's, it's a lot of timing on the envelope spend. I mean, traditionally earlier. Uh, earlier in the year, we uh, um, uh, were those envelopes, you know, sort of more conservative on levels of under uh, levels of overspend or underspend. So, um, but I think that there's nothing to be read from that other than sort of the longer term view of those margins in that 11 and a half to 12 range of as we've talked about prior. Got it. Um, and sorry, one more on Paramet. Um, in terms of the, what are the remaining costs to incur? Um, relative to the uh, the budget, uh, once the Alberta system gets rolled out, yeah. We, if you recall, we, the total spend for that project over the three years was about twelve million. We we've spent eleven six to date, 
Um, I'm not sure Alberta will cost us the full 400 when we get to it, but so, I mean, from an overall perspective, even with the deferral Alberta, with that sort of money tucked away, uh, we're still on track for that. Okay. Um, just one last one. Going, you know, going back to your comments around uh, assist and SGP, um, can you just expand on, on some of the commentary there? Like, what is the opportunity to expand that business and uh, you made some comments about seeing some incremental demand in terms of uh, what's been happening. So maybe some color there would uh, help. And after that, I'll turn it back. Sure, Tammy. Thanks so much. Um, yeah, the 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 opportunity in the, in that space is really twofold. So uh, we've been expanding it geographically uh, and bringing other service providers in other parts of Canada into the group. And of course, the larger the purchasing group becomes, the more leverage we have uh, from the perspective of getting uh, better terms and better pricing. Uh, and I think a good indication of that has been some of the uh, big players that we've had join the group uh, over the last couple of years uh, like Amica and Schlegel, uh, uh, Verve, etc. These are big organizations uh, who are still seeing a significant pricing benefit uh, and logistical benefit of, of joining the group. So it really has had some momentum uh, as we've, we've added some of these groups. But we're not operating uh, anywhere east of the Ontario border. So we see significant opportunities geographically. Uh, and we also see opportunities in the scope of services that we're doing collectively. So most of what SGP is focused on today is product, uh, but there's more in the way of services that we could be looking at. So think about things like property maintenance and insurance, uh, things that we could be doing collectively. So we see both uh, breadth and depth opportunities for expanding that partnership. Thanks very much, Michael. Our next question is from Tal Woolley with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. I just wanted to start by asking a couple questions about, um, you know, how uh, the operating frameworks might change as uh, the, you know, we sort of come out of this, um, you know, the LINs obviously provide, you know, refer a ton of services into home healthcare. Um, are there any types of services that you expect, you know, at least for the medium term because of what's going on here, uh, that might not, uh, continue to be offered in that kind of setting and might go back into a hospital or another type of facility? Well, Tal, the first comment that I'll make on this is that I didn't bring my crystal ball to the, <laughs> yeah. to the, the conference. Uh, so uh, we're, we're now into the, uh, the realm of wild speculation. Uh, and, and John Toffoletto, our chief legal counsel, is not in the same room with me. So uh, he can't throttle me, so you know maybe you'll you'll get an unplugged answer on this one. Uh, but one of the advantages of uh, being distributed. But uh, look, I, I I think there's going to be a lot of 
uh, really self-examination of the healthcare system uh, after uh, the, the the crisis subsides. Uh, and so there's a lot of different things that could happen. Uh, but what what I would say is that from a hospital perspective, uh, our hospitals were running at 97, 98% occupancy before this crisis started. And if you recall, there were pretty significant waiting lists for a lot of elective procedures as well. And now we've pretty much suspended everything elective for now eight weeks and counting. So those waiting lists are getting longer and longer and longer at an unprecedented rate. So the hospitals, as they ramp up, are going to face real pressure to uh, work through that backlog. So the thought that they would expand their mandate into other areas is not very believable, at least for the next few years. They're going to have to do uh, their their you know, the, the, the tasks that they're uniquely um, set up to do. If anything, I expect more pressure on community-based providers like us to increase our volumes to take pressure off the hospitals, not the other way around. Okay. And uh, I guess for a similar question on the long-term care side, any, like, is it feasible to think that some of these uh, incremental efforts you're making right now uh, would subside, or does it kind of feel like maybe this will sort of be a more permanent kind of way to operate going forward until there's a much broader review of how long-term care, uh, you know, is conducted in the you know in the various provinces? Well, look, the, a couple of things with long-term care. I mean, the first thing is is that the crisis has really put an exclamation mark on the need to replace the seabeds. If anything, I expect an acceleration of government efforts to get redevelopment underway as soon as conditions make that possible. Uh, so um, uh, the capacity issue is, is still there. Uh, the pressure from the hospitals is, is really going to be felt uh, as, as, you know, the need for uh, beds for, for that sector is, is still there. Uh, so, if anything, I'm expecting uh, that to uh, become a more urgent uh, kind, of, kind of activity. The other point to make is uh, with respect to uh, the newer facilities, they have a lot more physical space per resident. Uh, the residents are more, more uh, spread out. Uh, there are... Uh, private rooms and people are, are, are more effectively separated. So in dealing with outbreaks, newer homes have a huge advantage over the homes built 40 and 50 years ago. So I think that's part of the new normal in terms of being able to handle uh, outbreaks and any future pandemics. I think people will be very attuned to making sure that we're able to do that. Uh, and. Uh, uh, I think the uh, need to uh, have access to the kinds of capabilities that a company like Extendicare has, which we supply to other players through through our assist operation, uh, uh, is uh, you know bodes well for our ability to 
expand that part of the service. So I, I do think we're in a, a uh, you know, a difficult period of indeterminate length. I think until there's a vaccine, uh, it's going to be very difficult to be, quote, back to normal. Uh, so that could be quite a while. Uh, but that said, I think uh, as we come out of this, uh, the demand for our services is going to is going to be uh, higher than it otherwise would have been. Okay, and then just uh, a regulatory question to uh, one of the things we were you know talking about prior to all this unfolding was uh, here in Ontario the transformation of the lens into Ontario Health Teams and how that might play out going forward. Has that I'm assuming that kind of activity has basically been uh, you know shelved for now? For, for the most part, I mean, there's a little bit of activity continuing, some meetings are continuing, but uh, nothing, nothing substantial. I think regardless of how the, uh, uh, those, those health teams evolve, uh, the need for more integrated services across various sectors of healthcare will increase over time, and what that means is we need to be able to collaborate and cooperate better with doctors' offices, with hospitals, with public health offices, etc., uh, and not operate so independently as was the case in the past. And one of the interesting things that's happening through this, both in our home care and our long-term care divisions, is we've implemented virtual care services at a breakneck speed. I mean, we're offering uh, some of our home care services virtually now. The governments have set up the codes for that. We've already implemented that, and we're providing some services that way. Uh, we're able to get doctors uh, on, the, on the phone uh, through, you know, video conferencing right inside our long-term care facilities to get to get advice right on the spot, to get prescriptions right on the spot. So there's, there's some real uh, innovations that were always possible, uh, but now have been driven by necessity through this crisis that will persist long after. So uh, that's really going to help with that whole concept of care integration where we're cooperating more effectively with other players in the market. Okay. And I just lastly, I apologize if I missed this earlier in the call. Um, have they, the collection rates in retirement, have they been stable with what you've seen previously? Yes, they have. Our, both our April and May uh, rent cycles uh, were in line with normal, uh, normal uh, levels. Okay, perfect. Thanks very much, gentlemen. Thank Later. you. Once again, if you have a question, please press star then one on your telephone. Our next question is from Doug Lowe with Echelon Wealth Partners. Please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thanks very much, operator, and uh, good afternoon, all. Um, uh, Michael, I mean, you've, you've certainly talked comprehensively about uh, you know trend lines w within home health care, and uh, you know, kind of explained the uh, you know um, you know reduction in referrals that seems to be contributing to uh, um, uh, your service hours. But you know, I was thinking, you know, that the uh, you know the the, the COVID nineteen pandemic also you know provides an opportunity for you to provide home care services that would be directly germane to 
COVID-19 symptom mitigation. I'm thinking specifically about respiratory care or perhaps infusion therapy for intravenous uh, drugs that are either available or in development. Just wondering what what proportion of of your service hours are higher acuity services uh, of that general type, or if not, if that was a that was a category of services that you might be able to build out over time, uh, either directly in response to the pandemic or just, you know, for future reasons. Yeah, Doug, we're not seeing much in terms of, of therapy directly related to COVID-19. Uh, people who need uh, more, you know, more, more acute care are really being cared for in hospitals. Uh, we're not we're not set up in home care very effectively to provide, say, oxygen therapy or intravenous therapy for people experiencing an acute episode. And part of the reason for that is that uh, if somebody's short of breath, for instance, because they have a viral illness, first of all, it comes on quite quickly, and secondly, uh, it can deteriorate further. So because it's an acute episode like that, uh, that would be handled uh, in a hospital setting. The types of things we do with respect to intravenous therapy or oxygen therapy are situations where people are more stable. They have a chronic disease, for instance, that stays the same over weeks and months and is not in an active phase where it can be changing day to day. So that's, that's more what a home care service provider would do. So I think what we're seeing is uh, more situations where people want to avoid going into the hospital with their lung disease or uh, for dialysis and that sort of thing and more interest in trying to set up those kinds of services in, in people's homes. But we're eight weeks into this. So it's a bit early to declare any trends, um, uh, but I, I, I do expect those kinds of higher acuity services to be uh, increasing in a home setting. No, that's good feedback. And then uh, uh, just one follow-up. I mean, recall in your, in your preliminary remarks, you made some reference to uh, C-suite refurbishment and uh, potential to visit uh, funding there. I, I, I didn't catch whether that was with regard to the, uh, the, the ministry sort of on its own initiative, being willing to reflect on, uh, on, uh, on uh, CapEx funding there, or if that's just you thinking about that as being a, an obvious program by which to mitigate social distancing in your C-suite facilities. But I'll leave it there. Thanks. No, I, I, look, I, I think uh, uh, this is uh, an area of active pursuit uh, in the government, I think the government understands uh, the need to upgrade. I mean, they, they, the Ontario government in particular already had their program, as you know. Um, and, uh, uh, but, but they're also seeing uh, quite directly in this, in this pandemic uh, the difference in performance between new homes and old homes. Uh, so that's, that's just adding to the impetus that was already there to, to start addressing it. Got it. Thanks, Michael. There are no further questions registered at this time. I would like to turn the conference back over to Gillian Fountain for any closing remarks. Thank you very much, Claudia. That concludes our call for today. This presentation is available on our website, as are the call-in numbers for an archive recording. 
please do not hesitate to give us a call if you have any further questions. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Goodbye, and have a good long weekend. This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.